If you wouldn't mind grabbing your Bibles and standing with me, if you can, we are in the book of Acts, chapter 11, working our way through the Scripture verse by verse. Chapter 11, verse 9. Now those who were scattered over the persecution, after the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he had come and seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed to Tarsus, to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout the whole world which also happened to be in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Let's stop there and pray. Lord, we thank you for presenting this concept to us that we might see how important encouragement is. So speak to us now. Do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. Several years ago, I saw an ad in a newspaper in the classified section. It said, lost one dog, brown hair, with several bald spots, right leg broken due to an auto accident, left hip hurt, right eye missing, left ear bitten off in a dogfight, answers to the name Lucky. Is that awesome or what? So, is a name significant? Do names matter, or are they unimportant? Well, in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, names are very symbolic. They were intended to have meaning for the specific individual for which they were given. Parents thought the essence of their child should be captured 
in their name. And still today, Orthodox Christian, excuse me, Orthodox Jews often don't name their newborn for several weeks until a characteristic comes out. If they laugh a lot, it's a girl they may call her name Joy or something like that. When God created Adam, he gave him the name of Adam, which means man. And then Eve was created. Her name means mother of all living. So we see chosen names for children going on throughout the Old Testament and even into the New. Jacob's parents called him that because in Hebrew, to catch somebody's heel is Yaakov. And so his name became Yaakov or Jacob. His brother Esau was red and hairy. (laughs) So they called him Esau. Judah means praise. Samuel means asks of God because his mother Hannah asked God for a son and God gave her him. So she named him asked of God. Sometimes God himself changes the names of individuals to show them and people around them that they were undergoing a, a new nature, a new beginning. Abram, his name was changed to Abraham. His wife, Sarai, was changed to Sarah, which means princess, Abraham's name, the father of a multitude. Jacob's name, hill catcher, was changed to Israel, which means ruled by God or favor with God. Simon's name in the New Testament was changed to Peter, you remember, from pebbles to walk, to a big rock. God himself calls himself by different names, so we can look at those names and understand the characteristics of the God whom we serve. He is El Shaddai, which means the strong one. He is El Elyon, which means God most high. He is Yahweh Jireh, the God who provides. He is Yahweh Rope, the God who heals. He is Yahweh Kedish, the God who sanctifies. Yahweh Shalom, the God of peace. Yahweh Sabuth, the Lord of hosts or the army of heaven. Yahweh Tiskadu, the Lord our righteousness. Yahweh Shema, the God who is there. He is Yahweh Nisi, the Lord, our banner. Yahweh Roah, the Lord, our shepherd. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we often hear at Christmas time the names that were given for the Messiah. And he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and the Prince of Peace. The names of our Lord abound throughout Old and New Testament. He is the second Adam, our advocate, the Alpha and Omega, the Ancient of Days, the Amen, the author and the finisher of our faith, the blessed and only potentate, the captain of our salvation, the chief shepherd, 
the cornerstone. He is the day spring, the desire of nations, the faithful witness, the first and the last. He is the good shepherd, our great high priest, the holy one of God. He is the great I am, the judge of Israel, the king of the Jews, the king of saints, and the king of kings. He is the light of the world, the Lord of glory, the Lord of lords. He is the Messiah, the mediator between God and man, the man of sorrows, yet the mighty God. He is the prince of peace, the resurrection and the life, the rock of our salvation, the rose of Sharon, the root of David, the savior of the world. He is the shepherd and the bishop of our souls. He is the son of righteousness, the son of man, and the son of God. He is Shiloh. He is the true vine, the truth, the witness, the word of God, he is the Lamb of God and the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is Jesus. He is our Lord. That's what the various names mean. So, what can a name mean? There's a lot of things to be found in names. We are looking specifically in this section of scripture, at a man whose name became very obvious. His original name was Joseph, but no one even thinks of him as that because the disciples saw that he had a gift. He had an ability that was God-given, and they changed his name to Barnabas, Bar, son, Nabus, of encouragement. Because he was a man who had a gift of coming along to you and telling you what you needed to hear to be encouraged spiritually. He is the man who sought out Saul of Tarsus, who had been the great enemy of the church of Jesus Christ and then had an encounter with God, got radically saved, but no one would accept him that way. And so he fled. They put him on a ship and sent him north to Tarsus, his hometown. And this man that we're studying this morning, Barnabas, would seek him out, the past enemy of the church of Jesus Christ, and come alongside and encourage him and strengthen him and tell him what he needed to hear from Scripture and then brought him back to Antioch 
And from there, they would go out and they would become the torch that set the world aflame with Christianity. So we should pay heed to this man, that there's something in his life that you and I need to build up, look for, become good at, coming alongside other people, seeing their gifts, and encouraging them to use those gifts for the rest of us, the body of Christ. What's in a name? A calling from God in this man's life. Barnabas will take this newly converted Saul, whom everyone was afraid of, and encourage him to the point that all of Europe would hear of Jesus Christ. And from Europe, probably most of us in this room, our relatives would hear about Jesus Christ through these two men, Barnabas and Paul. So, a critical person, a critical name, a critical ministry, a critical calling that all of us should stir up in our own lives. Sons and daughters of encouragement. So, we have seen in the book of Acts that the church started in Jerusalem. It was all Jews. It began to spread a little bit, but it was going to Samaritans who were half Jews. And it never really had an impact until two chapters ago in the Gentile world. And we saw in chapter 9 and 10 that Cornelius was a Roman centurion who was a Gentile, but he knew he needed to understand who God was. And so he called Peter to come up from Joppa to where the centurion lived, and he spoke to his family and his friends and the other officers in the Roman legion. And the Holy Spirit fell on them just like he did at the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem on the Jews. And suddenly, everyone changed their way of thinking. They were thinking that to become a Christian, you had to become a Jew first. And then after you were a Jew, then you could become a Christian because they didn't know any Christians that were Gentiles. The whole world is being changed now. And you and I are the benefit of all that. There's three parts of this section. Uh, The first is the preaching that's going on. 19 through 22, and then the encouraging that's going on, and then finally, the teaching in 26 through 30. That's where we're going, and we all need to get better at encouraging one another. Verse 19, now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia. Phoenicia is just north of Israel, modern-day Lebanon, uh, Beirut. In those days, it was Tyre and Sidon, the Phoenician ports that really touched the whole Mediterranean. Cyprus, the island, of course, that's uh, almost up against Syria in the Mediterranean. Uh, today, it's half Turkish-speaking and half Greek-speaking, still a beautiful island, and um, Antioch. Now, Antioch is an unusual city, and they're preaching to no one but the Jews. 
This is a shot of the amphitheater, the theater that is in Antioch. It seats 100,000 people. And the Romans built the theater for one-tenth of the population. So the city, and that's the main cardo, it's called, the center drag, that's a Roman road that's 2,000 years, years old and is still being used today down the center. This is a church of Antioch, and the floors are polished just from people in sandals going back and forth. And there are still many Christians now, Antioch is actually over the border in Syria today, not too far from Aleppo that has been in the news a lot, but there are many Christians. 15% of Syrian population is not Muslim. It is Christian, profoundly Christian. This is a gold coin from 14 AD, Caesar Augustus, or excuse me, um, 40 AD, Caesar Augustus, it was minted in Antioch. This is the outside of that church. We got the slides out of order, but that's the outside of the church uh, that was just chiseled out of uh, sandstone, of the one we looked at the inside of, still used to this day, 2,000-year-old church, and there's the outside of it, and then the solid chunk of, of uh, stone that it was chipped out of. So, Rome was the largest city in the Roman kingdom on the Tiber River. Alexandria, the second largest city uh, on the Nile River. And then Antioch, the third largest city on the Orontes River. Um, it was over the eastern part of the Roman Empire. It was called the Queen of the East, a beautiful city. It was notorious, though, for its wealth, its luxury, and its immorality about 350 miles from Jerusalem. It was a metropolitan, <laughs> can't say a metropolitan, cosmopolitan commerce center, and uh, known for ethnic diversity, Arabs, Jews, Greeks, Romans, famous all over the empire for the chariot racing center. If you saw the movie Ben-Hur or read the book, it took place in this city. So it was also known for this immorality that was rampant throughout the city, and I, I emphasize that because a lot of us are struggling with what's going on in America, and we see the deterioration of, of morals and of crime. And This is the worst city, arguably, on the planet in the first century. But out of it, it would become the very center for Christianity for the first 400 years. So give heart, believers. Keep praying. God is not through with this nation we're in. So Antioch would become the place of some of the most gifted teachers in Christendom. In the first century, Barnabas, Paul, Peter, John all taught there. In the second century, Ignatius and Theophilus. And in the third and fourth century, Lucius, uh, Theodore, and John Chrysotom. Now, you probably don't know that name. Chrysotom comes from crystallis, which means golden, uh, the, the cocoon around a butterfly. But his voice, they said, was so golden because thousands of people got saved in this city. It had the largest physical church in the entire Roman Empire. 
There was a very large one in Istanbul. You can go and still see it today. It's still standing. Sophia, the Church of Sophia, uh, and it's huge. Uh, it has room for about 50,000 people in it standing. No pews, so you can't fall asleep. It, and, but the sister church was in Antioch, and it's, it can, st- uh, the, this preacher, John Chrysostom, you can still get his uh, lessons, his Bible studies, on the internet. And, uh, and he said in one of his sermons that there were 100,000 people standing inside the church at Antioch in the 4th century listening to him preach. So um, the gospel is, is growing. Believers are, are, are coming out of the woodwork, if you will. Jesus said in Acts 1-9, you are to go and be my witnesses, and that's what's happening. Uh, Antioch was the capital of the Roman province of Syria, um, magnificent buildings. Um, it was also called Antioch, the Golden, the Queen of the East, uh, the Main Street, the, the Cardo, I just showed you part of it, was more than four miles long. Talk about shopping until you drop. Uh, the only city in the ancient world in the first century that had streetlights, the first one in the Roman Empire before Rome itself. So, they preached the word to no one but Jews only. So again, they were thinking that you had to become a Jew first, and so these people they were talking to could more easily become Christians. But some of them, verse 20, were men from Cyprus and Cyrene. Cyrene is Tunisia the, uh, of North Africa, and Cyprus still the island. And when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, those who were Greek-speaking and probably Latin too, preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we'll see in the second part of this section that they were teaching the Bible. Those are two separate things. To preach is to uh, speak out evangelio or evangelisto, uh, to evangelize, and to teach is for believers to grow. And so we'll see both of this, these things in this section. Roman city, so they were Greek speakers, and by this time Latin was just coming into being. And the hand of the Lord, verse 21, was with them. That's an Old Testament phrase. It appears 38 times in the Bible, 34 of them are in the Old Testament, But here, Dr. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is marrying those two thoughts together, that the hand of God is on someone's life. It was said of Joseph that when he was taken and went into Pharaoh's court, the hand of God was on him. It was said of Daniel that the hand of God was on him in Nebuchadnezzar's court. It's a wonderful prayer for you to pray for someone else. May the hand of God be on your life. May he direct you. May he give your footsteps the right path to stay on. So the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. That word believed is coming up again. We talked about it a lot when we were in the Gospel of John. It appears 98 times there. To believe is the issue, not to attend church, not to read the Bible, Not to give money, 
but to believe, to trust, to cling to the truth that Jesus Christ died for your sins. I did a funeral this week of an old friend of mine. That means we'd known each other for a long time and we were both old. But uh, we grew up together. And some of you know the Farquhar family in Redlands, uh, been the orange-growing family since the 1800s. And the oldest son, uh, Monty, or Willard, was his given name. Uh, but Monty passed away, and his funeral was at Arlington Cemetery over in Riverside. And uh, I'd never been, I've done many funerals over there, but never done a funeral for a, a uh, officer. He's a high-ranking Navy flight instructor. He was a top gun. He was uh, flying A-7 planes off the deck of one of the largest aircraft carriers in the world. He fought through Vietnam, Desert Storm, and the Iraqi War. He had a lot of things he was carrying. I hadn't seen him for decades. And then one Sunday morning, about two years ago, he came into the second service and he sat all the way in the back, the cheap seats, all the way. Because he hadn't been in church since he was 17 years old, he said. And I did an altar call, as, you know, as we do around here, always raise your hand. And I looked, and here's this friend of mine standing up with his hand up. Now, Monty was a big guy, my height, about 6'4", but about 40, 50 pounds heavier than I am. He was a martial arts instructor. He was a flight instructor at Miramar. Some of you know that's the home of Top Gun. He was a Top Gun. And he was carrying a load when he came in here. He knew that a lot of people had died because he was a warrior, a man, a man's man, who had defended his country over and over again. And he came down here and we talked, and he wept. He asked Jesus to forgive his sins, and he started on a journey, and it ended rather abruptly a week and a half ago, the funeral this week. But I mention him because I got to watch the grace of God work in his life. He was a changed man, completely different, completely humbled. I just jumped two verses, but look at verse 23. And when he came, when uh, Barnabas came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad. And he encouraged, there that word is, the son of encouragement, encouraged them that with all of them, with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. So I watched this friend who we were always in trouble as kids. We raced everything. I think we started racing before kindergarten with our tricycles. It went from there to cars and boats and airplanes and anything that would go fast and blow up. So this man was being changed. Max Lucado wrote a, a fantastic devotional. It's actually in the bulletin that you have. See, the bulletin is not just for making airplanes for your children or grandchildren. It actually has another purpose. 
And I'm going to read it to you because I want to focus for a moment on the grace that changed this friend of mine. Grace is more than we deserve, Lucato wrote, and greater than we imagine. We talk as though we understand the term. The bank gives us a grace period. The seedy politician falls from grace. Musicians speak of a grace note. We describe an actress as gracious, a dancer as graceful. We use the word for hospitals and baby girls, little girls called grace, and kings, your grace, and premial prayers. We talk as though we know what grace means. But do we really understand it? Have we settled for a wimpy grace? It politely occupies a phrase in a hymn, Amazing Grace. Fits nicely into a church sign, Grace Community Church. It never causes trouble or demands a response. When asked, do you believe in grace, who could say no? But have you been changed by grace? Strengthened by grace? Emboldened by grace? Softened by grace? Snatched by the nap of your neck and shaken to your senses by grace? I won't ask for a show of hands, but... God's grace has a drenching about it, a witness about it, a whitewater riptide turn you upside down about it. Grace comes after you. It rewires you from insecure to God-secure, from regret-ridden to better because of it, from afraid to die to ready to fly. Grace is the voice that calls us to change and then gives us the power to pull it off. We say grace is unmerited favor with God, undeserved. It comes to everyone who will receive it. It's available for you here in this place right now. God's grace is raining down on this place. Will you cup your hands and save it and take it in and make it part of your life so that you might be emboldened by it, shaped by it, strengthened by it, softened by it, and yes, sometimes shaken by it. So this man, Barnabas, Joseph is his given name, but son of encouragement he became. And he took a man, Saul of Tarsus, who was known for killing Christians after Jesus had done a work in him. Now it's 10 years later, 11 years later, and he brings him to Antioch, the Las Vegas of that day, or maybe Atlantic City, or maybe West Hollywood, or maybe all three of them together. But he brings him, and there's a great impact he was good, it says here. He was glad. He was arrived with the grace of God. And we talked about the grace. He encouraged them all for a purpose of heart, a purpose for their lives. The good news is about Jesus Christ who came to Antioch. 
because of persecution and all the people that were there. And he works on hearts. He still does. The heart is converted by God. A good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and many people were added. A a good man means more than just simply he behaved himself, okay? Um, This is a reference to his disposition, his attitude. The word good here is agathos, and uh, it means pleasant, agreeable. It is a choice, attitude. The older I get, the more I realize that I can't change myself. I can't change my children. I can't change my grandchildren. I can't change my wife, and I certainly can't change you. Look around. That was a joke. The only thing that I can change is when I get up each morning is my attitude. Will I choose a good attitude? It is a choice. Well, all these circumstances, no, 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 no. No, God gives us the ability to rise above the circumstances. No matter how black it seems right now, you can choose to have a good attitude. You can choose joy in your life. It is one of those things that we can, perhaps the only real thing we can control. He was also full of the Holy Spirit. He was continually, it means in the Greek language, being filled over and over again with the Holy Spirit. Do you ask God for that every morning? I pray that that would become your habit. God, I need more of your Spirit. Give me more. Jesus said, if you would come and drink of him, out of your innermost being would come rivers of living water. Thus spoke he of the Holy Spirit, John 7 tells us. So if you want to be an encourager, you have to have the Holy Spirit flowing through you like living water to other people around you. He was a man of faith. Ah, another choice. Faith is not a feeling. You choose to trust. Same word. You choose to believe. Same word. You choose faith. Real faith has nothing to do with our feelings. It has everything to do with our choices. So this is the man who is being held up to us by Scripture, something that we need to become good at. He wants us to be like Barnabas. And what did Barnabas do? Next verse, 25. Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. We call him Saul of Tarsus, so what's Tarsus? So Tarsus is a city in modern-day Turkey. It's up on the top on the left-hand side, A. He's leaving B on the right-hand side, which is in Syria, not very far from the city of Aleppo I mentioned. And he crosses the border. It's only about 150 miles, but the road goes through two mountain passes that are more than 8,000 feet. So... 150-mile walk, he goes, leaves there on the right, and walks all the way around the tip of the Mediterranean. That's the site of the island of Cyprus there in the bottom left corner. 
And uh, he's looking, he's seeking for Saul. Now, the word seek here is an unusual. Anadatso in the Greek language is only used one other time in the entire New Testament. And that's in Luke chapter 2 when Jesus uh, was separated from his mom and his dad, Mary and Joseph, took him to the temple. And then Joseph thought that Jesus was, was with Mary and vice versa. And they went on and they left and started back towards Nazareth. And, uh, and then they realized when they saw each other that neither one of them had Jesus. So they, they hastened back to the temple to seek Jesus. They thought they'd lost the Messiah and God would be upset with them. Two of you were awake. That was a joke. So, um, he went seeking. And then, last section, verse 26. And when he found him, when Barnabas found Saul, he brought him 150 miles back up through these two mountain passes, serious walk. And so it was that for the whole year they assembled with the church. So, um, I guess some of those pictures are important. Verse 27. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Verse 26. And so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught, there's that word, a great many people. So the church now is being built up, strengthened, because God is going to send them out to the world. And the disciples, what they were called when they were under Jesus, became called Christians in Antioch. Now, uh, Christos, the Greek word, is, is, we say Jesus Christ. That's that word, Christos, is anointed. You add an I-A-N on the end of it, and you become Christ men or Christ women. Now, maybe that's not a popular term today, but God puts a stamp of approval on it here. It's a great privilege to be called a Christian when it applies, when it fits our lives. And this was the first time it happened to anyone. And in these days, prophets arose, came from Jerusalem to Antioch. So it's about 350 miles. This is a serious trip. They come to Antioch, and there's actually requesting help, but they bring a message from the Lord that there was a great famine that was coming. Verse 28, one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Lord that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Now, we know Claudius Caesar was the Caesar from 41 to 46, so, or actually to 51, but about 46 is where Josephus tells us this actually happened. And so Israel was uh, struggling. It was a famine caused by no rain. You see, global warming started a long time ago. That that was a joke, too. And and, uh, so they came seeking help for the believers, the Christians, back in Jerusalem. Then these disciples, each according to his ability, when they heard this, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. These Christians took the word seriously 
and they sent financial help. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So obviously they trusted these two men. But I want to comment on something I've observed over the last, that's ah, probably 20 years. And that Christians, particularly in Southern California, when they begin to become enthusiastic about eschatology, that Jesus was coming, that the rapture might come at some time soon, they begin to plan, a plan to survive through the tribulation. I'm not planning on staying here for the tribulation, but many have. And so they turn all their money into gold, and then they move to Idaho with assault rifles so they can shoot their neighbors when they come asking for bread. How's that working for you in your mind? (laughs) So I'm trying to stop that cold, number one. Number two, look at the difference between the believers in the first century, and they immediately started to plan on how to be helpful, how to help other people, how to encourage other people, how to act like Christ's men, Christ's women. So, verse, wow, we got to 30 already. Let's drop back to uh, 23 and try and wrap it up here. Then he came and had seen the grace of God working, and he was glad, and he encouraged them all that with purpose of heart, they are purpose themselves. It should be intentional to serve the Lord. They should continue with the Lord. Max Lucado, I read that little section about grace. He was being interviewed later about his book, and, and they asked him why he wrote a book about grace. There's already so many great books about grace. And he said, the Apostle Paul never seemed to exhaust the topic of grace. What makes us think we can? He just kept coming at it and coming at it from another angle. And that's the thing about grace. It's like springtime. You can't put it in a single sentence definition, and you can't exhaust it. No other philosophy of religion has anything quite like this idea that God takes the initiative and comes after us, not just to save us, but also to take us to heaven and to sustain us. Grace is God's greatest work And he is giving it to us. But what is grace? Grace is God replacing our dying, diseased-filled heart with his heart. And when we are accused by the world and by ourselves, we feel the fiery wrath of condemnation. But Jesus gave up everything for me to free me from the punishment of condemnation. That's why Paul wrote, There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. One final thought. I am kind of a fan of uh, warriors, and I was thinking about them this week because of that funeral I was mentioning to you. and, And I picked up a book that I've had for a long time about Alexander the Great. He was a brilliant strategist and a powerful general, he was not a believer. Um, but he was not just a leader of men. He was a fearless leader. 
He was not a leader that stood back when they entered into a battle. He was right out in front. He, he had a giant horse, the largest one that they could find. Called, he called it Bucephalus. And he was the only one that could ride it. But he would be out in front. And he never got touched by an arrow, even though men would die around him. And he quickly took over the whole known world from Spain all the way to India. And when he had reached the outskirts of Baghdad, Babylon in those days, um, his generals told him that they had sent out Scots and there wasn't anything beyond. There wasn't anything worth conquering left in the world. And he got down on his knees and wept. He was so disappointed he couldn't battle anymore. But I give you that background, not because I think that's a good way. In fact, he had a, a terrible idea of having a court after every battle. And uh, he would have two of his generals, one on each side, and anyone who showed any cowardness in the battle was brought before him. And he was very severe with the men who showed any cowardness. Well, after his final battle outside of Baghdad, which they won, um, he held the tribute, the tribune, this court, and uh, a young man, fair-haired, he, he wrote, blonde-haired, blue-eyed kid, was brought in front of him. He says, very young. And uh, all the men around the court looked at each other with terror because they knew this kid was going to die. So um, Alexander said, what's his name? And the general who was over him said, his name is Alexander, sir. And he said, Alexander's face softened. And he said, his name is the same as mine. The general said, yes, sir. And everybody breathed a sigh of relief. But then Alexander asked, and what are the charges against him? And the general said, Desertion, sir, in the middle of the battle. And Alexander's face went to stone, they said. And he stood up and he walked down to the young man and he said, What was your name, young man? And he said, Alexander, sir. And Alexander put his face right up against his nose and said, I said, What was your name? And this time the kid's shaking. He says, uh, uh, stutters, uh, Alexander, sure. And Alexander grabbed him by the front of his armor with one hand, lifted him off his feet and said, change your name or change your behavior. You are called Christians. Would you stand, please? Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us your name, that you allow us to use your name. Help us to walk in that. Lord, most of us in this room know what that means. We've surrendered to you and how we need your grace to actually be what we want to be. But Lord, we pray for anyone here this morning who's not walking with you and ask that you would speak to them right now. Christians, please pray. So I wonder again if there's someone here who maybe you're here for the first time 
and you're trying to figure out this thing called grace, you're trying to figure out forgiveness. Forgiveness is received by accepting what Jesus did for you, confessing your sins. This moment is for you if you've never done that. If you'd like to know that your sins are forgiven, if you'd like to know that you're going to spend eternity with God, if you're ready to surrender your life to God, would you let me know you're ready by looking up at me and raising your hand? I won't do anything, God bless you, I won't do anything to embarrass you, but we'll just acknowledge it. Very back row, God bless you. I saw someone's hand. Yes, God bless you. Here behind the sound booth, a couple, God bless you. Anyone over here, God is saying, come to me, all you who are heavy laden. Young lady, yes, God bless you. Yes, God bless you. The two of you, bless you. If I miss your hand, don't worry, God didn't. He sees every one of them. Those of you that raised your hands, would you talk to God with this? We'll do it with you to make it easy. We'll just ask him to forgive our sins, and he always answers that prayer. So would all of you please pray out loud with me and say, Dear Jesus, I give you my life. Please forgive my sins. Fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I can serve you from this day forward. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.